You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. We are continuing our sermon series in the Psalms and today we are in Psalm 5. Psalms 3, 4, 5, and 6 are all thought to go together because of the way they move from the morning to the evening. Psalm 3 is considered a morning psalm because it talks about sleep that he previously had the night before. Psalm 4 talks about going to sleep, and so it's considered an evening psalm. Psalm 5, which is today's psalm, is considered a morning psalm, and Psalm 6 is, what would you think, an evening psalm, right? So historically, Christians would use these psalms as sort of a morning and evening devotional. It would lead them into the day and it would take them out as they go into bed. But there's something else that ties these psalms together. They are filled with calling out to the Lord in the midst of trial. They're filled with crying out to God with real wrestling and struggling in the midst of real trouble. All of them are. I I bet you've noticed that. I hope you're not tired of it. It could be easy to be wearied by that. It could be easy to say, we're supposed to gather and come and praise. We just got done singing to the Lord. I don't want to hear a a psalm once again, another Sunday, about struggle and trouble and difficulty. But as your pastor, I think it's important for us to learn how to do this. It's important for us to learn how to call to the Lord in the midst of trial. The reality is that life is hard and the majority of our lives are spent dealing with the hardships of life. And if that's the case, then we need to learn. We need to be ready. We need to be equipped with how to worship the Lord in the midst of brokenness, don't we? We must be equipped with how to worship the Lord in the midst of pain, in the midst of trouble. So much of what you see or what we see in today's church culture is this triumphalism. The the Christian life is one of only glory and happiness and prosperity. Every song is one of victory. Pastors sound like hype men. You walk into the church and they're they're supposed to just be like, and, and just welcome, welcome, welcome everybody. You feel like you're walking into a circus, right? This triumphalism of just, pastors sound like these hype men. It feels almost like it's illegal to struggle in the church. Like it's not normal to be a struggler. But the reality is everybody listening, everybody coming in, if they're real with ourselves, if we're just real with ourselves for a moment, the reality is, is that the majority of the people in the church are suffering. I can tell you that as a pastor. Majority of us are struggling in some form, some way. Struggling, wrestling with this world that we live in. And a lot of people don't know what to do with it. If I'm supposed to be bubbly and happy and triumphant and, and then I show up to sing and my heart is crying out to God. I don't want that to be us, church. I don't want that to be you. 
The Psalms don't show us how to pray and sing in such a way that removes the struggle or ignores the struggle. They teach us how to struggle. The the Psalms teach us how to worship in the midst of our brokenness. And that, worshiping in the midst of our brokenness, has been the DNA of, of Christ's family from generation to generation for us to learn from and be compelled by. We're a family of strugglers. We said it last week, and I'll say it again this week. We're a family of strugglers. Look around. Welcome to the family. <laughs> Nothing beautiful here in a sense left to ourselves. Family of strugglers. The song that we sang earlier, Turn Your Eyes to Jesus. How many of you are familiar with that song? I don't usually ask for you to raise your hand. Raise your hand. How many of you are familiar with that song? Most of us. Most of us. It sounded like you were familiar with that song. The song, Turn Your Eyes to Jesus, was written in 1918 by a, a lady named Helen Lamel. She lived in 1863 to 1961. She was a gifted musician and spent her early years learning music as she even traveled abroad at one point. She loved to teach others music. As a young woman, she got married and continued to do her music. Life seemed wonderful. She's doing her passion, music, teaching others. She's married. She, it seems like life is all well. It's going great. What could happen? You know, what could break this apart? It seems great. After being married... For four years, she was struck with a sickness that ended up causing her to become blind. Her husband, in response, didn't feel like he could live the rest of his life trying to care for an invalid, and so he left her. And she wrote the song that we sang, Turn Your Eyes to Jesus, with blind eyes and a broken heart. You want to talk about worshiping in the midst of brokenness. For nearly, or actually over a hundred years now, that song is still being sung by Christians today. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world or this earth, the troublesome things, will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. We need to learn how to worship in the midst of brokenness, don't we? like Helen Lemel, like David. So we need the Psalms. Today's Psalm, and actually over a third of the Psalms in all of Scripture, pack that away, stuff like that blows me away. Over a third of the Psalms in the Scripture specifically teach us how to struggle. They are struggling cries to God. I think God wants us to learn how to worship in the midst of brokenness. How to pray and cry out to the Lord in the midst of trial. And these types of psalms have a name. They're called lament. Lament. I've heard it said, and I I agree with this, that lament is a prayer of pain that leads to trust. A prayer of pain that leads to trust. Often we're tempted to grumble to God in the midst of our trouble. What is going on, God? Right? We're, we're, we're tempted to grumble, but when God's people lament, it's different than just a grumble. It's expressing complaint, it's expressing heartache and pain over brokenness, but it's more than a grumble. In a lament, we are turning to God. We are honestly 
expressing our hearts of grief over the sin brokenness of this world to God. We're inviting Him into our cares, entrusting ourselves to Him, and finding joy in grace in the midst of our grief. That's lament. We're turning to God, honestly expressing our grief, inviting Him into our cares, entrusting ourselves to Him, and finding joy in grace in the midst of our grief. Not, not necessarily aside from our grief, in the midst of grief, there's joy to be found as we lament. And that's what we see in Psalm 5. It teaches us to lament. So that's what we're going to see today. How, how, how can we lament? How do we lament? That's what we're going to see. Let's read Psalm 5. Follow along with me as I read the word and then we'll pray. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you Rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with, a, with favor as with a shield. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that grabs a hold of our hearts and points us towards you. And it helps us. It helps correct wrong belief. It helps us reorient ourselves in the midst of times and trouble when it can feel disorienting. Lord, teach us how to lament. Teach us how to praise you, how to worship you in the midst of pain, in the midst of brokenness. Do this for your glory, that we would be a church who could be honest about struggle, yet filled with joy in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, and the church says a hearty amen. Amen.
This is another psalm of David, and it's similar to Psalms 3 and 4, but this week I hope for us to specifically see how it teaches us to lament. The first thing we see in verses 1 through 3 is lament turns to the king of kings. Lament turns to the king of kings. In the midst of David's trial, he turns to the Lord. I know we saw this in Psalm 4, but it's no surprise that here we are again in the very next psalm, possibly the very next morning. Think of it in those ways. We don't know for certain, but historically church, church history, they've, they've thought of it that way, right? Morning, evening, morning, evening. The very next morning, he's having to run to the Lord again. We often think that I pray once and then I'm good to go. We see David constantly turning to the Lord, constantly. He goes to bed crying out to the Lord, Lord, you're my salvation, help me. And the very next morning, Lord, hear my groaning. I'm coming to you once again. We see David over and over again running to the Lord. Hear his words. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. My King and my God, for to, to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. As his day begins and his trials haven't stopped, they are ready to wake him up and flood his heart and his mind. And here he is groaning. Okay, have you been there crying to the Lord? There's not even words expressible to God to express the hurt and the pain and the trouble that you're experiencing. I'm sure you've been there. I've been there. I'm sure you have too. The groaning of the Christian's heart. I'm groaning to you, Lord. He's, he's groaning. He's crying is another word described there. He's praying, turning to the Lord. For us to see David do this psalm after psalm in the evening, we can make application for this very thing in probably every single psalm. In the evening and then in the morning, it's pivotal for us to see this. Pivotal for the Christian life. To, to see David doing this over and over again. Because I don't know about you, but often when trouble awaits me for the day, when I'm waking up, the sun is hitting and the alarm's going off, often when there's trouble that's awaiting me, the day's beginning but the trouble hasn't stopped, my thoughts aren't, oh, it's going to be a great day. I can't wait to get into the day. No, it, the thought is, how can I avoid the day happening? How can I avoid the sun continuing to rise? Maybe Jesus will just come back right now. Oh my, I can't tell you how many times you feel like that. Don't you, can't you share in that? You feel that? You're wanting to hide away. You're not ready to start the day. You're just wanting to hide away from the day. Hide away into our pillows, into our bed sheets. For most of us, our hiding begins with our phones, the mornings that coming, the day is brewing, trouble is on the horizon. Let me just escape in social media. Let me just thumb through Facebook 
and just see everybody's lives and just forget about what's happening. Can we do that? We need to see David in the morning running to Jesus or running to the Lord, right? Because we need that. We need that reminder. We try to escape the day David's running to the Lord in the midst of the trouble constantly. This is a very humble thing. For the person in pain to wake up and turn to God about their struggle is a humble thing. It, it, it goes against everything naturally inside of us. Listen to David's words carefully. David, the king of Israel, the king, turns to the Lord and identifies the Lord as my king and my God. David is identifying the Lord as the true king of his life. David knows. That's, that's, that's not just like, you don't just pass over that. David knows the burden and weight a king must carry. He knows what's involved in being a king. He knows what it takes. He knows how hard it is. He knows the king can't ignore what's happening among his people. The king is to be aware of what's going on. Don't we see that in scripture? The king carries a responsibility for all the people. The people have a trouble. They have a disagreement. Where do they go? They go to the king. King Solomon is helping people debate through things. He's helping them weigh through things. He's helping apply truth to their situation. He's helping them walk in wisdom. He's looking out for them. David knows what is required of a king. He knows that it's the responsibility for the well-being of the people. The king is the one who takes oversight to guard and to keep his people right where he wants them to be. The king is charged to fight and protect his people. The king carries a weight and a burden to problem solve that no one else carries. And here David is, an earthly king, entrusting the burdens of his life, the problems of his life, to the king, true king of his life, the Lord. I think often in times of trouble, we feel a weight and a burden on us to fix the problem because we're trying to carry what only the king can carry. We're trying to be king of our own life. I am the king of my life. I got to fix everything. I got to be in control of everything. I got to have an answer to this. And we carry weight upon us and burdens that we were never meant to carry. We try to carry what really we're supposed to lay down at the king's feet and entrust that responsibility to him. When our real, our real responsibility in this moment of trouble is to respond to our problem in a way that honors the king and trusts the king to do what kings do. Think about that for a moment. I'll tell you. I like to use myself as an example. I use the negative examples for myself. I'll commend you and use the negative examples. I'll say the negatives for me. I can so struggle with trying to hold on and be the problem solver, the king of my life. 
instead of running to King, our King and true King of Kings and Lord of Lords and saying, you know how to handle this. Do what you do and let me trust you. We try to carry things. I try to carry things that I've never meant to carry. And often we need a friend coming alongside us and helping us see that. You're carrying something that you're not entrusting to Jesus. His yoke is light. He offers rest for your heart. Let him carry the heavy stuff. David appeals to the Lord as king with an assurance in the Lord that the Lord hears him, he says. Our temptation in the midst of trial is to feel as if the Lord is not near and he is not hearing me. I can feel that way. Can you? I can feel that. And so the temptation is not to pray. The temptation is not to go to the Word in the midst of trouble. You feel like He's distant. He's, you feel like He's not near. Well, what am, I, I've been, he's not responding. I don't think He's responding to me. I don't think He hears me. That's the temptation we can feel in the midst of trouble. The Word proclaims to us. That's why I love the Word, because the Lord just grabs our hearts like a lasso. Oh, man. My girls have this show that they enjoy watching. It's this cat who's like a sheriff, and they got this lasso, this special lasso, and, and, and everything is solved by that lasso. Just lassoing things back in. Things are out of control, and she's just lassoing it back in. That's what the Word of God does. And I hope you don't, I hope you don't mind silly illustrations. I'm a simple guy, precious saints. Some of those illustrations are just going to come out. <laughs> the Lord in his word just grabs hold of our hearts once again. He grabs hold of, of David, grabs hold of us. He, the word declares to us, he, he is not a God distant. He is not a God who doesn't hear. Verse 3 declares, he hears us. In the morning, you hear my voice. Isn't that one of the most comforting truths for the struggling soul? The God of the universe hears me. Oh my. Oh my. Yes, that is worthy of an amen. In the morning, you hear my voice. He hears our prayers and our cry and even our groaning. Our groaning. When we can't even express in words to the Lord the pain we're enduring, the Lord hears the groaning and cry of our hearts and can make sense of it. Doesn't that remind you of a verse or passage, Romans 8? When there's not even words I can express because I'm so broken, the Spirit intercedes for us with groaning. The Lord makes sense of it all. The Word tells us we're not the only ones groaning. All creation is filled with groaning. All creation is aching. It's hurting from its sin brokenness. All creation aching, longing for God to restore and renew it. To come and fix the trouble. To come and fix the problems. All the mountains that men climb, they're aching. They're groaning to God. Every tidal wave is an ache of creation. All of it. Every little cry of every bird as it's brought into the earth. We're not meant to cry. Every little cry a baby, every little moment, all creation aching and groaning for renewal. Even if it doesn't realize it. But the Lord makes, hears it 
and can decipher it and make sense of it and respond to it. Praise God. David says in the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. You hear me? And I prepare a sacrifice and I watch you. I wait and I watch. It's a, you, you have that picture, right? You're putting the wood, you're, you're preparing the wood, you're putting everything in place with an eager and confident expectation and then the sacrifice is lit and then you watch. You stand back and wait for God. Precious saints, in the morning as we pray, as we come to the Lord preparing a sacrifice, it's like putting those little log wood, setting a flame, putting those little woods there, setting it aflame, and just letting the aroma of our prayer go to the Lord, and then we wait and watch. He comes to the Lord first thing in the morning, David, and then waits and watches for the Lord to act. Lament turns to the Lord, appeals to the Lord as king, yet has an assurance in the Lord that he hears us. And that also connects to our second point, remembering just who the Lord is. Verses 4 through 7, lament remembers the unshakable character of the Lord. When we're going through trouble, it shakes us, doesn't it? It shakes us. News of cancer hits. It shakes us. Death strikes the family or a loved one. It shakes us. Chronic illness is unrelenting. It shakes us. Hurting friendships shake us. People we trusted sin against us. It shakes us. We're, we're lied about. We're gossiped about. People attack people. The nations attack nations. You turn on the news. It shakes us on and on, doesn't it? It feels as if we can just live life unsteady and shaken. Our foundation that we're standing on feels as if it's just unsettled. Yet a part of the cry of lament to God is God's people remembering the unshakable character of who God is and what that means for us. We are steadied in our shakiness. I might be inventing a word there. We are steadied in our shakiness when we cling to God's unshakable steadiness. Oh my. Listen to David remind himself of who God is and what that means for him in verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Two things David remembers of God in the midst of his trouble. God is incredibly holy and he is unrelentingly loving. He's incredibly holy, and he is unrelentingly loving. It breaks my heart because there have been time after time I've heard God's people express what they feel in the midst of suffering, and I'm grateful for that. We, we, there is room to express how we really feel. That's part of lament, being honest. Just being honest and not being afraid to be honest. But it breaks my heart because in some of that honesty, at times, it sounds like 
I've heard some of God's people, they believe God is out to get them. Like God is hunting them, toying with them, playing with their lives. As if he enjoys, enjoys their pain. Like he enjoys crushing them. And so they question his goodness and they question his love for them. I've heard it over and over again. And I'll be honest, there have been times in my life where I've been tempted to feel that way. But that's not a right view of God. It's a skewed and wrong view of God for his people. Our hearts can tempt us to think God is sitting by unlovingly enjoying our pain and that he's okay with the evil we endure in this present life. But these verses say, not so. Not so. Verses four through six point us to an incredibly holy God who is good and pure and just, who has no delight in wickedness. Evil can't dwell with him. So he doesn't live comfortably next to evil. He's not okay with wickedness. He's not okay with evil. He's not comfortable with it. He hates evil and those who delight in evil and wickedness. He's not all right with it. And it's only a matter of time until he's done with it once and for all. And this has an incredibly comforting response to it or or application upon our hearts because as we endure the pain of living in a sin-broken and wicked world, we can rest assured that the Lord who is sovereignly reigning over our lives delights in doing what is right and good towards us. He delights in doing what is right and good. He takes no delight as evil and wicked bombards his people and attacks his people like wolves attacking little precious sheep. What kind of shepherd would he be if he delighted in the wolf attacking the sheep? There's a balance, precious saints. And those of us who believe in the sovereignty of God can wrestle with this thing. We try to reconcile it in our minds. There is a balance There is a balance, right? You've heard Martin Luther say, the devil is is still God's devil. He's on a chain and leash. There are boundaries that God sets for the enemies of of his people. Though he sovereignly reigns over our lives, even over the suffering, he hates evil. He hates the wolf that attacks his sheep. Yet somehow, some way, he uses that for his glory and the good of that sheep. The word of God reconciles it in our, begins to reconcile it in our minds. He doesn't laugh at our pain. He hates evil that harms his sheep. He hates the sin brokenness of this world. And one day he will put an end to it all. In verse 7, David remembers the Lord is unrelentingly loving But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. In a moment when the temptation is to doubt God's goodness and doubt God's love, David remembers the truth of how he's even been able to be counted as one of God's own and welcomed into God's presence 
through the abundance of God's steadfast love. God's undeserved, unfailing, faithful, ever-enduring covenantal love. We talked about it last week, his chesed. That very word, steadfast love, is his chesed. It's this beautiful covenantal love, this unrelenting love that God has for his people that will not be denied, that is unstoppable. It will never run dry. And David recalls and remembers that steadfast love. It is only by this love that I come and worship with you, that I come into your presence, that I've been welcomed and drawn near to you. It's only by this steadfast love that you have for me. And it leaves David in the midst of his lament, in the midst of his crying out for, in the pain and hurt and struggle to tremble at God's holiness, yet to rejoice in God's steadfast love. And we would call that, those are the makings of the fear of the Lord. Those are the makings of a biblical good fear of God. So fear of God in the scripture, what we see is not, is not merely just a fear as if like, hey, stop doing that. And, and, and you stop, or I'm going to crush you type thing. Often we think of fear that way. What we see in Scripture, this fear is built upon two things. It's built upon seeing Him in His holiness and seeing Him in His incredible love. His relational relationship towards us, this undeserving God, or this undeserving person who's received so much from God. And so it's this, it's this rejoicing and this trembling at God. We rejoice in the steadfast love and His goodness towards us. In this great king who loves us, we rejoice. And so we stand and we cheer and we say, yes. And then we remember, oh, and he's holy. He's mighty. And he will crush evil. And he hates sin. And we go like this from here to, oh my, I bow before you. Oh, holy and great God. And I live to serve you. That's the balance of the fear of God. This rejoicing. You are so good and so great. And I'm yours. And you are so holy and I bow before you. This is rejoicing and trembling before the Lord. Our laments to God need, they need to include the truth of God's unshakable holiness and loving character. They're kind of like these barrier walls for the Christian life, for the fear of God. They're like the holiness of God on one side and the, the, the incredible unrelenting love of God on the other side. And they, they work together in parallel and in harmony to keep us in bounds. I used to love taking our youth and junior youth, this is our previous body before we planted this church. I used to love taking our youth and junior youth, so ages 8 to 18, and we take them, I take them in different groups. I take the younger ones and I take the older ones. I love to take them to this like little mini theme park. So I had little rides and games you could play. My favorite thing, it was like the, the high, none of the kids knew this, so I'm admitting something here. I loved the go-karts because I always won. That was like my thing. That was like, if there's one moment in my life where I just shine, it's go-karts at the mini theme park. <laughs> and so we would go, and I couldn't wait to get on. They're like, hey, do y'all ready, ready to ride the go-karts? And everybody's like, oh, we'll do it in a minute. Like, oh, let's go ahead and go now. I loved it. 
what blew me away is how terrible all the teens and kids drove the go-karts. If there were no bumpers on the sides, they would fall off the track. And this track was like a two-story track. You'd go up and then you'd come down and, and you're fast and you're going and, and you would just see kids. The re one reason why I always won had nothing to do with my skill. It had everything to do with them not being able to drive. That was it. They would constantly hit the left, hit the right, get stuck. If I'm behind someone, I would just wait long enough for them to hit the wall and I'm passing them. That was part of what, what I enjoyed. You're hearing just revelations of a pastor's heart. Memoirs of a pastor's life. There you go. Uh, some guys have like, whole, you know, I conquered the hill, you know, and I, I, I won in go-karts against youth. Church, the love of God and the holiness of God are like the barriers and bumpers for the Christian life that keep us on path in our lament. If we forget the love of God and we lament, we think he's just crushing us. And there's a weight upon us he doesn't love me in this. And then we despair and we're depressed and we lose all hope. If we lose the side where it's all love and we forget his holiness, we can fall off the path. We can forget that he's, he hates the evil that I'm enduring. Not only does he love me, but he hates the wickedness that I'm going through. He hates what we're enduring. He hates the sin brokenness of this world. We need both in our lament. We need both, both barriers on both sides working in harmony, a reality of the incredible holiness of God and a reality of the unrelenting love of God that keeps us going. Let's keep moving. You with me still? You there? Okay. Third, lament invites the Lord into our cares and asks Him to intervene. Verses 8 through 10. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Our temptation is to respond to the sin brokenness of this world with our own sinful response. We heard some about that last week. I think it's a little bit different this, this week. Someone say, says something hurtful to us and the impulse of our hearts is to want to say something hurtful back. We're hurt by someone, and I, I, I want to hurt them back. I, I want them to feel the pain I felt. You see, you see it on the news all the time. Someone did this to somebody, or, and, and, and then they responded in retaliation. Neighbors are fighting against neighbors, and it's this back and forth until it spirals out of control. We can feel that if we're not careful, can't we? We can feel it. David feels this pull and asks the Lord to intervene Listen where he intervenes first. He asks the Lord to intervene in his own heart first. That's key for the Christian. He asks the Lord to intervene in his own heart first. Lord, come into my trouble and lead me in your righteousness. Lead me in your righteousness. Lead me in your way. Make your path straight for me. Lord, help me to respond in a way that you would consider good and godly and right. This is such a good reminder because often when we find ourselves lamenting to God, typically we're more aware of our need for God to intervene in our circumstances and less aware that we need God to intervene in our hearts too. 
Yes, in our circumstances, but we need him to intervene in our hearts. There has to be room in our lament, in, our, in the midst of our brokenness and pain and hurt. There has to be room in that cry to God where we ask God to first intervene in our hearts. We've got to do it. I guarantee you if we do that, it changes the way we relate to each other and it changes the way we respond in the midst of trouble. I guarantee you. You ask God to intervene in your heart, stuff happens, right? He hears us. Stuff happens. Oh, church, you're so patient. I hear the cry of a little baby. I see the, the heat and people waving there. You are so gracious and patient. Thank you for letting me preach to you. We ask the Lord to intervene in our hearts and then we do ask the Lord to intervene in our trouble. Listen to David. For there is no truth in their mouth, Lord. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. So he's just laying it out before God. He's being honest. They're, they flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their trans transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. David's trouble involved people who were scheming evil, plotting, living a life of lies, loving sin, and rebelling against God. And David appeals to God to intervene and respond according to his holiness that, he just, that we just talked about. God hates evil, and so David appeals to God to bring righteousness and his holy judgment upon those who are delighting in evil. He's asking God to do who God is. You hate evil. Crush it then, Lord. Crush it. You hate evildoers. Stop them. David's appeal. God, bring your righteousness and your holy judgment upon those who delight in evil, upon the evil that I'm experiencing, that their counsel would lead them to destruction, that they would bear the guilt of their sin so they wouldn't get away with their sin that they would pay for what they're doing under the crushing power of God, David asks. That's a real prayer, isn't it? Whew. I think it echoes Psalm 1. If you've noticed, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, we said it's a, it's a doorway into the rest of the Psalms. Haven't you heard echoes of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 in Psalm 3, in Psalm 4, in Psalm 5? You hear the echoes. Psalm 1 lays the, the foundation for talking about the wicked and the righteous, doesn't it? That the Lord loves the righteous. He loves his people. He loves those who have taken refuge in him. He loves them. And the wicked he will punish. Listen, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So there's the counsel. Counsel of Psalm 5. The counsel of the wicked in Psalm 1. Nor stands in the way of sinners. Nor sits in the seat of scoffers. A little bit later. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Remember, they're like the worthless grass in the midst of the harvest that is good for nothing. And it's just dead, dry stuff that will blow away. And, if it, and whatever doesn't blow away is burned. The wicked are like chaff. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Lament sees the problem of evil in the world and asks God 
to respond according to his holiness. It sees the problem of evil and asks God to respond according to his holiness and his commitment to righteousness. It invites the Lord into our trouble, asking the Lord to intervene and entrust it to the Lord who is holy and righteous. That's what lament does. Take care of this wickedness, God. Remember this. This isn't just a prayer prayed. It's a song sung, wasn't it? Aren't the Psalms? They weren't just prayers prayed. They were songs sung by God's people. Publicly, corporately, by the people of God. And in doing this publicly, what do you think the effect had as this is sung out loud among all the people to hear? What do you think the effect is of that? That, that as it's sung publicly, God, bring your wrath and in your holiness, destroy wickedness, destroy evil, and those who do it, save us from evil. For the church to sing this out loud and declare this out loud, it would have been considered a mercy, a kind mercy of God. A kind mercy of God. How? It's a kind and patient warning for those close enough to hear, whether in David's time or in this very room right now. A kind and patient warning for anyone who's close enough to hear who are considering a life of sinfulness that God will not let this sinful rebellion go on forever. You might think it will. It will not. He will crush it with all of his might one day. And so it's a warning it's a warning. Turn from sin. Turn from a life of wickedness. Don't think it's appealing because they get away with it now and Christians suffer. And so I'm, well, I'm just going to go that way. No, you run from it because there's wrath coming for those who walk down that path. There's a God who is holy who will crush those who give in to this. He who delights in righteousness will one day destroy wickedness and those who live a life delighting in wickedness built into public lament as we pray together or we sing together, as we cry out to God together is a warning to the world and those in it to turn from sinful rebellion because the Lord is on his way and he will intervene. Oh my it may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, it may not be next week, but he will, won't he? Neil Woolard, a pastor and writer for Nine Marks, Nine Marks is a ministry of Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. We subscribe to those Nine Marks. It's on our website. Um, they're just trying to equip churches to be healthy churches, essentially. They came out with an article this week, which I think was actually an older article, but they re-released it this week. And it's called, Why We Added a Prayer of Lament to Our Sunday Gathering. I think I'd like to see us do that a little more. In our moment of confession, to have moments where we lament, where we say, take your care and your burden and the hurt of your heart to God. Let's do it together. Listen to this, what he says. Lament teaches us to take the full range of our emotions to God. And this will be on the screen. We don't have to pull ourselves together before we come to him. Rather than letting our emotions drive us where we want, 
or where they want. We're using them to drive us to the Lord. God can handle our deepest emotions. A lament is ultimately a prayer of faith. It acknowledges that God is in control, and so we cry to him rather than run from him. Faith does not minimize our grief, but helps us place our trust in him, even as we suffer in the here and now. Lament teaches us to trust God amid pain, whether it's caused by our own sin, the sin of others, or the sinfulness of this world. We know one day he will remove all pain and evil and bring justice and renewal to this world. He will wipe away every tear and heal every wound. And so we take our pain to him now, even as we trust that he will take it all away then. Lament invites the Lord into our cares and asks him to intervene as we trust that he will one day bring justice and renewal to this world. In the New Testament, Paul takes these verses of verses 9 through 10 about the one who is in sinful rebellion, whose mouth is a grave, who speaks lies, who's nothing but murderous deceit. But he doesn't just speak of them as if they are people out there, just people out in the world. Paul takes these verses, and in Romans, in some of the most humbling verses, he connects this sinful rebellion to all of us. Listen to Romans 3. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none are righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There's the dry, dead chaff. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat, here it is, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul says that's all of us. All of us apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, apart from his redeeming work, we are those, oh, listen to this, we are those David prays against in Psalm 5. Did you consider that? Often we come to these Psalms and we immediately put ourselves with the good guys, right? We read David and Goliath and we're like, oh, I'm David for sure. Like I'm picking a character. My kids do that all the time. We're watching a movie. Oh man, I'm, I'm that character, like the coolest one. We see David and Goliath, oh, I'm David for sure. No, do you really you realize we're actually the terrified little Israelites who have no clue how to save themselves? That's who we are in that story. In this psalm, do you know who we are? Apart from the redeeming work of Christ, we're those David is praying against. We're those prone to sin. We're those who go our own way. There's no peace in our lives. We're, we're headed towards sin in sinful rebellion to God, aren't we? We are those David prays against in Psalm 5. I don't know about you, but when I first read the psalm, that's not where my heart went. 
What an important truth to remember about ourselves in the midst of lamenting the pains of this world, lest we be tempted to bring our, our complaint to God in pride. As if we're entitled to something. Lest we take on the heart of a Pharisee and say, at least I'm not like them. What a wonderful reminder for us as we cry out in pain to God over the trouble we face. We're humbled by the reality of our own sinfulness and the reality of what we truly deserved apart from Christ, but what we have graciously and undeservingly received in Christ instead. Oh, church, Think about all the ways you have rebelled against God and what you truly deserve. We don't deserve to have a place to, to, for God's ear to listen to us and then to complain. I've rebelled in so many ways to God. But then the truth of the gospel is God the Father knows that and the Son knows that and in union, they have this wonderful plan. You may have heard of it, the gospel. And Christ comes willingly with the heart of the Father to fulfill the plans of the Father. And he knows we've, re we've rebelled and we've fallen short. Who could stand before him? And he comes and obeys the Father in every way possible. Never once rebelling. Never once disobeying. Never once dishonoring God. Tempted as we are, yet never once failing as I have. Conquering the quest and the journey of the Christian life. Conquering it in our place. Perfectly obedient in our place. And the most radical, incredible part of the gospel. He looks upon the cross that was my cross and your cross. And he allows himself to be hung on that cross, to die a sinner's death next to criminals. Next to the truly sinful and rebelling against God. He allows himself to be hung in our place. That was your spot. Your name was written on that. And he goes and he allows himself to be hung on that cross as another criminal. And he takes upon himself the full weight and burden and wrath and guilt and shame upon himself that we deserved. He fulfilled David's prayer on the cross in one way, didn't he? In already not yet, he fulfilled a part of it for those who would trust in him, for those who would take refuge in Jesus, for those who would trust in his redeeming work. Jesus would say, David, that prayer you prayed, I've paid for all of that for them. They were once the sinful, rebelling ones. Your prayer has been answered. That wrath has been paid for, and it was paid for by me. How amazing is that? And we can't forget that. We can't forget it. Even when we lament. It humbles our hearts. It makes us humble. We've said this so many times. It makes us humble and happy people, even when we're grieving. To know what we truly deserve before God, we're about to end church, I promise. 
to know what we truly deserve before God, but what we have received in Christ is incredibly humbling. And it's, it's, it's for us. We remember that as we come alongside David in this psalm and we remember that in the midst of our lament. We remember the gospel. We remember what we received and what we had deserved. And then as we lament, as we cry out and lament in the midst of our painful circumstances, yet our hearts are tethered to the truth of what we have received in Christ. It's a, it's a humbling of our hearts that postures our hearts to lament with a joy in the grace of God in the midst of our grief. And it drives all of our worship. You want to know how to worship in the midst of brokenness? Remember the gospel. Remember what you deserved and what you have freely received in Christ. The cost of his life. That leads us to the final point. And this is the end. It's, it's closing, I promise. Lament finds joy in God's grace in the midst of our grief. Verse 11, but let all, so listen to the, the change now. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Oh, think of it on this side of the cross. Let all who take refuge in you, Lord Jesus, rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy in the midst of their lament. And spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. I love that David ends the psalm this way because it declares to our hearts that there is joy to be found in the midst of grief. Oh, it seems as if in those moments joy is, you can't find it. Like it's, it's depleted. But through these verses, it reminds us that, that, that though we cry out to God and grieve the pain of our sufferings and heartaches, there is a deeper joy untouchable. Oh, it's a reality that enabled Paul in the New Testament in, in 2 Corinthians 6 to say words like this, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. The world is not as it should be, and though we grieve, we take our laments to God, we take our pain to God. For those who take refuge in the Lord, David declares, let them rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Why? Because their current problems are all fixed? No. He's still lamenting, and he's going to lament next week. Get ready for it. And then he turns to praise. Oh, praise God, the last two weeks are just exploding praise no our problems aren't all fixed but because we're covered in the undeserved favor of God as with a shield he says his grace his undeserved favor his undeserved love the Christian rejoices and finds joy in grace in the midst of their grief church. I want that to be us. I want that to be you. What trouble are you experiencing? What pain are you walking through? What lament do you have? Turn to the Lord. Entrust it to the Lord. Recall the Lord. Remember the truth of the Lord. And then find joy in grace greater than your grief.